0: Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This month covers the film Holy Smoke with two guest stars, the only time so far that I've done this, where I have the hosts of the No Ship Network podcast uh, network, where they had the podcast Sparkwood and 21 on Twin Peaks, uh, M and Steve. They came on to discuss Holy Smoke several years ago when I recorded this episode for my Patreon. In fact, M was the one who had chosen this. This was a time when I had patrons making selections of topics. And I'd never seen this film. I was interested. I'd covered the piano recently, I think also at her request. Uh, and uh, I thought this would be interesting to follow up with. So we discussed this film uh, in light of the piano in, you uh, know, in other uh, aspects as well. But uh, last month I recorded an episode on the, or I released my episode rather on the piano uh, as part of a sort of two part Jane Campion series so you can check that out too that's on this feed uh, this whole season from now till June I'm going to be covering at least two films by three different directors that's sort of the loose theme of this season uh, before we get into the podcast itself I'm just going to let you know what I've been up to uh, elsewhere on my Twin Peaks Cinema podcast feed I covered the film King's Row a 1940s film starring Ronald Reagan it's part of a three-part series on that feed called Small Town Blues, where I talk about films that uh, classic films from the 40s or 50s that have uh, sort of a darkness underneath the surface of a small town theme, uh, much like Twin Peaks and talk about their connections to that show. On YouTube, I released Twin Peaks Conversations number 6, audio only, Hazel Drew Mystery: Murder at Teal's Pond author Mark Givens. So this is a conversation with the author of this new book that came out about a girl who was murdered in 1908 whose case influenced uh, Twin Peaks and all the interesting connections there, uh, but also just how fascinating this case is in in and of itself. It was never solved, and the authors felt they might have a solution to it, uh, which is in their book. We don't talk about—we you know, allude to that, but we don't get into it in the conversation, but we talk about uh, the difference between the worlds that this young woman inhabited, between the city of Troy, New York, and the small-town woods, And it's kind of similarities there. So there was a lot of great stuff to dig into. And on Patreon, for $5 a month patrons, I released the Patreon exclusive part two of Twin Peaks Conversation with Mark Gibbons. So that's 55 minutes longer than the one on YouTube. Um, Not just like that plus more. It's a whole section of different material. That's what I do every month. I release less than half of the conversation on YouTube and a little more than half, sometimes two-thirds, of the conversation on Patreon. So continuing that now. Uh, for a dollar a month patrons, I put up episode 87, Twin Peaks Cinema on Dangerous Ground, talking about the film noir from the 50s by Nicholas Ray and how that connects to Twin Peaks. Plus my Twin Peaks reflections on Pete Doc, The Spirits, Glastonbury Grove Bank, uh, the the savings and loan in Twin Peaks, uh, Mystery Box, Storyline, which I connected to Mulholland Drive and more. So exploring all those Twin Peaks themes on there. And I also made uh, now available Lost in Twin Peaks on the season two finale and all three seasons to all patrons. So, my Lost in Twin Peaks podcast is something I'm slowly releasing publicly. So far, I put out the first season. But if you want to hear the second and third seasons, at this point, they're all available to the dollar a month uh, patrons on uh, Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Lost in the Movies. On my uh, website, lostinthemovies.com. I'm continuing my Mad Men Season 7 Viewing Diary. Now, Season 7 was kind of a funny one. They actually released it in two parts. It's basically two different seasons. Uh, One takes place in 1969, the other in 1970. So uh, since I last released a podcast, I've been continuing that every Monday, 8 a.m., a new Viewing Diary episode goes up, and I've released Episode 5, The Runaways, Episode 6, The Strategy, and Episode 7, Waterloo, which concludes Part 1 of Season 7. And then Part 2 is premiered, with episode 8, Severance, and episode 9, New Business. So really enjoying these last couple seasons of Mad Men. I wrote all this last summer, so it's all you know, on schedule to go up through the finale in early March. And uh, looking forward to having people be able to read my thoughts uh, on these episodes, because there was so much to dig into there. And I've also been releasing every Wednesday a written series, uh, capsule reviews of all the Olympic documentaries over a century, Um, Criterion Collection put these out a few years ago on disc and I think also on their channel and uh, a lot of them are available online from the IOC uh, Olympic Committee and I started doing this last summer right after the summer games in Tokyo and I was going to do them every month and I fell behind on other things but now I'm catching up with all of them before the winter games so I'm I'm still working on them but I'm at a pretty good clip where I'll be able to finish it before the Winter Games are over. So every Wednesday, six or seven of these roundups uh, so far i have released uh, the second part, which was summers, uh, the Summer Games of 2004, 2000, and 1996, and the Winter Games of 1948, 52, and 56. Uh, I'm actually uh, moving backwards with the Summer Games since I started Uh, right after the 2021 Summer Olympics, I thought, why don't I move back in time with those? And I'm alternating that with moving forward with the Winter Games. So picture it like a kind of a thread winding around itself, one going backwards, one going forwards. And uh, with the Winter Games, you know, going from the past, when I conclude it, I'm going to be right up to 2022, which will be going on really a few days from now. So this was fun to do in that style. I also released the third part, which was The summer games of 92, 88, 84, and 80, and the winter games of 60, 64, and 68. And uh, actually today, um, the the day that I'm releasing this podcast, I'm going to put up the fourth roundup. And this is where the summer and the winter kind of meet halfway. And from this point on, the summer summer documentaries that I'm covering are uh, earlier than the winter ones. So it was uh, summer games of 76, 72, and 68, and the winter games of 72, 76, and 80. And there's some interesting films mixed throughout this. Some of them are sort of straightforward uh, recaps of the games or whatever. Um, But there's some that kind of stick out. Like today, one of the films that I covered was Visions of Eight, which was eight filmmakers from around the world people like Milos Forman and Kon Ichikawa from Japan. And Arthur Penn, director of Bonnie and Clyde, and they each direct a segment of the summer film that focuses on a different aspect in a different way. Like one person, Claude Lelouch, I think, films like The Losers where he's filming everybody who lost a match and they're breaking down and all the stuff that you don't always see in in the coverage. Arthur Penn does one about pole vaulters where they're like blurry shapes moving through the the field and everything so i had a lot of fun doing this i I won't go down to that rabbit hole too much more this is a long intro to this podcast so we'll get into holy smoke in a second Uh, but also on my side i'll mention i did put up cross posts for the december patron podcast and also the january twin peaks conversations you can check all that out on lostinthemovies.com here without further ado is holy smoke
1: At an age when she could do anything, Ruth Barron set out to try everything. In India, she acquired a taste for the exotic and got seduced by a world completely different from her own. Her family imagined the worst, so they hired a top American expert to lure her back. A relief that you've arrived because we've all been so worried.
0: Look at this, it's a gift. See, she's coming towards me. This can be over 12 hours.
2: I imagine you could persuade any woman to do anything. Do you have a website? This is a complete waste of time. You're never going to break me. There's no way I can even listen to someone
1: like you who dyes their hair. But you date little Barbie dolls. You're so brainy. You're so big. In the middle of nowhere... You want to sleep with me, don't you? I'm a regular person, and you know it. ...where rules don't apply... What about you kiss me? No, Ruth, I can't do that. ...anything can happen. Take me. I think we better phone your mother. I don't think Mom's paying him to him. You're out of control.
0: You didn't seem to mind last night.
1: Now, it's going to be an all-out battle of the sexes.
0: Wait do minute!
1: Miramax Films presents Academy Award nominees Kate Winslet and Harvey Keitel in an erotic new film where everything you thought was holy is about to go up in smoke. Holy Smoke.
0: The film in focus this week is Holy Smoke. This is Jane Campion's 1999 film starring Kate Winslet and Harvey Keitel. This was recommended to me by M as a patron. And now I have M as a guest to discuss it. So it's (laughs) all worked out perfectly. So this is one that M brought to my attention that I'd never seen before. So I'd like to have you, if you could, introduce this film. Tell us what it's about and give us a little context on it.
2: Okay. um, The initial premise is about a young woman who goes to India and joins a cult, and her family wants to free her of that influence. So they manage to bring her back home to Australia, but then they hire uh, an American cult exeter to come and and work on her mind as far as freeing her mind from from that um, influence. But it turns to be more about a deprogramming of the cult of self, I guess, because it it starts out as that, but it it becomes – something more that happens between the two of them because he's just as much as affected and devastated by their encounter as she is in the end. So it it took a surprising turn for me. I really didn't even know what I was watching when I first started watching it. I just wanted to watch a Kate Winslet movie.
0: Yeah. If you could talk a little bit about your, your personal relationship to the movie, your history with it and your experience with it.
2: I was a fan of Kate Winslet because my favorite movie for a long time was Heavenly Creatures. And so I started wanting to see more of her films and um, I picked it out, not knowing what it was about at all. And I hadn't even seen the piano at that time or any other Jane Campion movies. Uh, so I was lacking awareness of her and her work. And I, I found the, the movie to be enjoyable because uh, I wasn't, in any way expecting what happened. I've rewatched it probably, I don't know, maybe five times or something like that. And I, I enjoy it every time. And I have, I feel like I get closer and closer to understanding what's happening between the two characters. The The more I watch it, the older I get.
1: That that definitely plays into it too. The older I get. So I've, this is my third watch of it. I, I thought it was just like a, a quirky kind of indie film that had some Pretty hefty themes that I didn't know if I was ready to tackle yet at the time, or probably just wasn't because I was only like 25 or something. Not to say that you have to be older to understand it, but my 25-year-old brain wasn't ready to understand it yet. (laughs) Now, after this watch, I feel like I've got a pretty good grasp on what they were trying to say with the movie.
2: It's a humanist film. Some people have criticized it as being a feminist soapbox, especially the, the latter half of it. Jane Campion actually writes male characters very well. Yes, her her movies are about women and their stories, but the men who tend to figure in them also transcend and grow. So I don't I don't think they're villains necessarily, you know. Yeah, well,
1: Harvey Keitel is is definitely not a caricature in this movie. He's not a cardboard character who's just a stand-in so they can kind of uh get up on the quote-unquote feminist soapbox and and you know, just hurl invective out there that that's not at all what's going on with this movie
0: no i mean i i really saw a through line with this this was my first time watching this and i had just recently watched the piano which was also m's patron recommendation earlier on and boy those films just feel really linked in a lot of ways um partly well partly the character harvey Keitel plays they're very different characters Mm -hmm. and yet they both want to have this power in this relationship, and they can't seem to get what they want when they have the power, and only when they are actually willing to let the woman control the process, uh, are, you know, does something more mutually beneficial come, if that makes sense. Let's see, of Jane Campion's films or, or series or whatever, I've seen this uh, The Piano, Bright Star and uh, Top of the Lake, and then a few of her short films as well. And I think it's interesting what you said about her liking, you know, she she writes male characters well. I think she really has a fascination with, a particularly like a certain type of male character. Like I think Harvey Keitel in both of these films, but also um, the character Matt, I can't remember who plays him, in Top of the Lake, I think is this similar sort of character where he's, got this, he's, he's kind of this uh, raging id in some ways and abusive and violent, Mm -hmm. but also extremely vulnerable, kind of sensitive in a weird way. That's, that's a character that she keeps sort of returning to in interesting ways in different contexts.
2: Well, the connection I would say um, in regards of how she writes male characters, I think she gives voice to male sexual desires and doesn't make it a bad thing. It's just, they have to grapple with it the female protagonist is grappling with something herself, but they, mm-hmm. they kind of butt up against each other and they shape each other.
0: That makes sense. That's why I
2: think it's a humanist film. Cause you, these encounters do happen. It's just, we don't really examine them. And I feel like mm-hmm. these are examinations. If you really look at it,
0: I don't think it's necessarily feminist in the sense that a lot of the critics seem to be meaning it where it's like this limited thing that only applies to women. Does that make sense? Like it's a feminist right. film that applies to men as well as women.
2: Like it's a feminist film in the positive sense Yeah. the word is that you mean, yeah.
0: Just the positive sense, but also in like an expansive sense where it's like, yes, it's coming from a female perspective and it's applying that perspective towards men, but it's doing so not to dismiss, like you said, it's not dismissing the male character. It's using that as a frame to, to explore them. Mm -hmm. one thing that did strike me right away about this film that was very different from The Piano and Top of the Lake and really anything else I'd seen by Jane Campion is, to me, at least two-thirds of the film, and even in the end, after all this dramatic uh, stuff that happens, it really... I would classify it as a comedy, personally. Yeah. Like, it, it feels like a comedy to me. I was actually kind of surprised when I looked on Wikipedia they described it as a drama, and I was like, really? Like, to me, this is a very archly often comedic film and it establishes that tone right away with the credits and there's a sequence where the guru touches Kate Winslet's head and an eyeball opens up inside of it Uh and she goes into this weird animation then they repeat something like that at the end where uh, Harvey Keitel is crawling through the desert and he sees this vision of of Kate Winslet as uh uh you know with with multiple arms and everything like that this really felt like very much of its moment to me. Like, watch it, I was like, I can totally see that this was 1999, not just because of, you know, the Alanis Morissette. The type of movie this is, where it's like quirky, wacky comedy, reminded me so much of The Full Monty and Waking Ned Devine and, um, what was the other one? Uh, Little Voice, which I think was a Mike Lee film, if I'm not mistaken. Usually British comedies or Irish or something, you know, and, and they'd be less sort of like quirky village life type thing. And this reminded me so much of that. Like it felt very much of that moment in a way.
2: I liked the comedy. It, it definitely enriched the background characters, so to speak. I I got a sense of chaos from her family, and um, which informed me a little bit about why she was trying to find something different. Um, and throughout a lot of their interactions, you also discover that she finds like, especially with her dad, when she confronts him about his sex bomb and stuff like that. And she rips his toupee off his head. Like there's this sort of falseness that she thinks she's getting away from. There's some characters that she really connects with, like her mother and Tim, her older brother, Tim, who's uh, gay. And I think because, because he has lived as he is and and doesn't live a false life, maybe to her, um, where like once, At one point, I think Yvonne tries to talk to her, and she just stone faces her, where Yvonne is like all artifice from head to toe. And that's her Um, sister-in-law, right? Right. Yeah. I think that is something that she feels like she's escaping. And she's developed this sort of defense mechanism, which she interprets as her heartlessness. And that's, in the end, what she has to grapple with and um, work against by being kind. And that's what she does in the back of the truck. She finally walks the walk in that way. From what I was reading about other people's takes on this film, I I wasn't aware of the fact that it was cliche for Australian films to have portrayal of, of families as dysfunctional so um, I think because at the time that I encountered this film most of the films I had seen really had that more homogenized kind of approach towards characters especially background characters it made it more dynamic and there's this sort of like claustrophobia that happens with with all the characters there's so many mm-hmm. of them and 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 also they the setting which um Sweetie also has the same thing another Jane Campion movie there's lots of fabric and and just detritus, just discarded all over the place, and and that also like contributes to this this feel of of claustrophobia, especially at the point where Ruth breaks down after they've watched the video. I, I think she at I, I think mm. that was genuine tears coming from her. She she just felt so trapped, like she just wanted to get the hell out of there. And that's when she incepts her plan to to you know se- sexually manipulate. Uh, P.J. <laughs> P.J. Waters and the introduction of P.J. Waters is one of my favorite parts of the film because I think it's really setting him up for failure
0: and he's the Harvey Keitel character
2: right right it, it's it's this really hilarious heroic introduction where he's free in these carts at the airport for people to use and he ends up face to face with this I think fun house mirror version of himself or maybe how he views himself or I also thought maybe the usurper that's forever at his back especially somebody who's like so ego driven too
0: yeah because he's very conscious about his age throughout this film insecure about the fact that he's so much older than um well than the Kate Winslet character yeah than Ruth
2: I think that gives you an idea that this this person's due for a downfall
1: which you know it has to that has to suck to be somebody who is so centered around your your looks and your virility and your your age and you you only get older obviously right <laughs> so it's it's a uh, you're you're not fighting a battle against anybody else except yourself and your perception of how people see you and those are things that you um you can't really control that at all so it's it's kind of like this perpetual thing once you get past a certain age and it's, it's interesting to see it played out in a man because we always see this happen with women in movies who are just trying to always grab after the youth right. that's, that's mm. slipped past them and you know, getting um, physical augmentations or dressing in a certain way or acting out sexually in a way that keeps them uh, in, in the eyes of the men around them. And so this is a, a man who is trying to still cling to, the, to some semblance of youth in a certain way and all the all the you know the really bad vulnerability that comes with that.
2: This movie has moments that get me really emotional. I it's I can't figure out what it is specifically that's happening. I think there's a culmination of a couple of things like Battlements score and and Kate Winslet's performance but you know specifically when she confronts her father while he's golfing um it and even though there's like a comedic element cuz Fabio is like we love you we all love you. I love you. And you know, he's got his busted nose and it's, it's ridiculous, but I, I have tears running down my face. It's, it's, and I, it actually even my, the way I feel is actually prepped by her driving, listening to that Alanis Morissette song. And it's hmm. not like I'm a huge fan of Alanis Morissette, but it's just, there's just something about her, that sense of feeling that she's just about to like head back to India, I think. And Get on to where she wants to be, and then now she's just trapped, and, and her sense of frustration is is so palpable in her voice.
1: It all it all cements it together, though, because um, you know, being a Gen Xer, that that yeah. is a song that is one of your soundtrack songs from your generation. Whether you love the thing or hate it, you know, and catch me on a certain day, and I could be either one of those, really. <laughs> but uh, it it's it's kind of like that that feeling that. Um, Gen Xers tend to have, and I don't want to speak for all Gen Xers, but I think I'm speaking for most of them, that there was this feeling like you wanted to just break free of whatever you were doing and go out and just see the world. Get, get on a bus and go. Get in your car and go. Just walk down the road and see what, what was behind the next rise kind of thing. And so she's exemplifying that by doing it. So M is absolutely right when she says that you have that really palpable sense of being uh, hemmed in by these people in your family who are holding you back in a mm. physical sense, because they all surround you and then lock hands around yeah, you. Yeah, they got
0: a circle around her.
1: Yeah, and, and you know it's coming from a place where they they love her and they care about her. You 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 step back and and see it from that point of view, and you understand that. But if you're looking at it from her point of view, it's just like. You people and all your false bullshit and the way that you lie to each other all the time. Why do you have the right to hold me back from something that I know is true and real and beautiful and and so on and so forth?
0: Well, Em, in the notes that you sent after you watched Mm -hmm. the film, you mentioned that you don't think when she sees the cult video that it's like deprogramming her in the way that they think where it's like she's seeing this and like, oh, my God you know, uh, Jim Jones, they killed their people. So this guy's going to kill me. Oh my God, I got to get out of this cult. Like your reaction was that that's not really what's going on. You think something else is happening there and, and something else makes her go into the bathroom and cry.
2: I think she definitely felt isolated. And, and, and that, that trapped feeling came again. Um, and she's with people she doesn't want to be. And, and they've, they're viewing her in that light and that's not how she sees herself at, at all. Um, I also think that if there was any hope in her whatsoever that there was going to be any guidance coming from PJ Waters it was completely decimated at this moment because she looks over and she sees him caressing Yvonne's thigh and I guess I should say he's a victim of his own weakness I think she she gets up and cries because she feels at a loss of what she can do to get out of the situation and then the next scene she's made her decision on how she's going to get out and she was going, she's going to shift the power dynamic between them. And she does it by sexually manipulating him in this super advanced way. (laughs) Like I feel like that takes quite a bit of wisdom to know, to do what she did, especially given the, the, the montage that we, we saw of her, her previous boyfriends. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I also think that montage might also inform us that she's, Maybe hasn't had a lot of connections with people.
0: It's just like this montage of really sort of generic faces saying like, "Hey, baby," and like all this like all this yeah. corny stuff. Like these were her previous supposed deep connections that she had. Yeah, that she's flashing they, they through in foolish. her mind.
2: They seem foolish. They seem young compared to her.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, like and, and 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 maybe that's it. That she maybe never really felt like she could connect.
0: What is the scene where you're talking about where she you feel like she sexually manipulates uh, PJ and gets? sort of shifts the power dynamic towards her.
2: At the point where she puts on the performance that she's breaking, she she sets her sari on fire. Mm-hmm. You know, it's nighttime so that draws him outside and he walks outside and finds her completely naked. And there was times when I would watch this and I was unsure if, if she was actually purposely doing that or not, but mm-hmm. I, I do believe she was because she she refers to what he's doing as heart surgery, which kind of plays up to his ego. You know, She's talking about her, her, her brain's cracking and all this stuff. And then urinates on herself, which I think is the advanced level sexual manipulation. So, <laughs> And it works. And she continues to toy with him after that. But, you know, the next morning when her family or her her siblings arrive and want to take her out, and he doesn't think it's a good idea, she's already wrested that power from him. And she says, no, I think it's good for me. And so they go. And so she continues to maintain that control for a little while for like the next two days, I think. He never got day one accomplished. So let's just, he, he was supposed to earn respect by the end of day one. That didn't happen. And so, but he moves on to day two, like trying to like um, achieve the day two goals without actually achieving day one. It's like, uh, you need to extend day one into maybe a 48 hour like time timeframe.
1: It, it all comes down to it being predicated on his charisma. And how he can influence people and how he can use his confidence to get them to see things his way and sort of just maneuver them and manipulate them this way and that until he spins them around and they're dizzy and then he kind of grabs them by the shoulders and says, okay, stop. And when your vision clears, you're looking at me and I'm the one who's going to take you out of this mess. But then when you're dealing – that all crumbles when you're dealing with somebody who is willful and as self-centered as she is and – also self-motivated to try to find things that are going to give her what she perceives to want in life. And and that's who he's dealing with at this point. And she was pretty much able to get the upper hand fairly easily, I think, just by a little bit of, of being like, oh, well, I'm going to brick wall him on this, and then I'm going to kind of fuck with him on this, and then I'm going to use the whole sexual manipulation thing.
2: It's possible she had the upper hand when they first made eye contact because he does look... Like he's thinking he's out of his depth
0: hmm.
2: at that moment to me.
0: Well, he's also he doesn't have his like assistant or something that he wants, right? right? So he's already off on the wrong foot from the from the very start of this whole business.
2: And I think the assistant is necessary primarily to protect him from his own ah, weakness. Wow,
0: good point. Yeah.
1: That is something that I didn't um, that didn't sink into my head until this third watch. Yeah. And that's, I, I completely agree with that. That is, that is totally true because th- this person not only would probably fulfill the role of, you know, cause you, you kind of like usually have two exorcists or something like that. And they can read the, 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 uh, <laughs> the passages from the Bible and go back and forth. But um, that is a big role because all of this hubris and ego and confidence and everything leads to this point to where, You're thinking that this kind of guy thinks that every female out there is eventually going to drop her panties for him. It's just a matter of how and when. And if there's an opportunity, so that there's that's a buffer zone that he doesn't have anymore. And he's not used to working in that way. So he's take he's also at a disadvantage because he's taking on all of the duties and trying to play two roles apparently. Mm,
0: good point. Yeah. His whole conception for how this works, if you think about it, is kind of cynical. It's this idea that like these people have been programmed by a cult and so to deprogram them, he's basically going to become their cult leader. Right. And then they're going to follow him out of the cult. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then, you know, so it, it, I, yeah, I almost feel like maybe when she's watching that video, it's less... And it's funny, we're given so little a sense, and I this was a criticism of some of the critics, which I can kind of understand in a way, is that we're not really given a sense at all of this cult that she's in. Like, it's almost like it's just sort of a premise so that we can get to the point where she's being deprogrammed from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we watch that video, it's not like we don't really even have much to go on of like, oh, this is related to her cult. How exactly? You know, we just, we don't know anything about it. So what we can relate it to is her family's relationship to her and PJ's relationship to her. And so when she's watching this and seeing all these people be manipulated by these, you know, communities and by these charismatic figures it almost feels like it's telling her you're in this cult situation right now. You know, mm. <laughs> this is, you know, like yes, that. this video is accurate, <laughs> but it's describing this. And I felt like a part of the dynamic of what's going on here and in general, and he talks about this when he says like, I break them down and reality rains down on their head and they feel like their head's being torn open. And then, you know, that's a necessary part of the process, that pain and all that. There's a sense in which, the the cult reality or the whatever, you know, because it seems kind of harmless, honestly, this this group she's a part of. I mean, I don't know what the guru is doing, but it, from what we can see, it's it's just mostly people in, you know, saris hanging out and and getting ecstatic like they wouldn't like a holy roller church or something <laughs> like it's nothing. It doesn't <laughs> seem that, you know, it seems somewhat innocuous.
2: You have to wonder about why are they so sure it's a bad thing for right. her?
0: yeah that and also it's like okay so that exists that's a thing that that sensation that she feels when her third eye opens up and everything that's real but you can be taken away from it so in a sense what they're doing is taking her away from the happiness she's known and so when she's watching this cult video it's not like necessarily a realization of like oh all of that was fake it's Oh, this is real too, and I can just as easily—I mean, think of it like uh, Diane or uh, what's her name, Betty in Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, Martha Nakumson kind of brought this up on me to me because she felt like, uh, you know, I know we're going off a little in left field, but not too much. <laughs> you know, Lynch always relates to everything, <laughs> but uh, the, you know, she she felt like the first half of that movie wasn't like fake, and the last part was real. She's like, well, it's all real. It's just that sometimes you're in this more positive place and sometimes you're in the more negative place and both are real. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that necessarily works for me as an interpretation of all the drive, but it is true in general. And I think it applies well to this film where she's taken out of this place of comfort and happiness and, and security. And it isn't more real than that. Um, they're both real, but like it's make, it's make it's making her unhappier to be brought out of that place. And so this deprogramming, even if it's, like, working, it's not working in a way that's, like, productive. It's just replacing one, one mind frame with another, which is a lot more unpleasant and negative, if that makes sense.
2: But she still ends up somewhere positive, though, in the end of the film.
0: Yeah, and, and I th- I, th- I think that's because she breaks out of the paradigm to a certain extent of following something, maybe.
2: Well, y- yeah and i I think you're you're definitely right about how we don't really know much about this cult that she was joining, and we only know about it how it relates to her and I was trying to understand that and I mm-hmm. you know if i if I think about her inability to connect in a meaningful way to people because you know she describes herself as heartless and things like that um that was a nice safe group to kind of join because mm-hmm. yes, you're marrying the Baba but it's like everybody's marrying him, right. so it doesn't have that that required intimacy it's it's this like distant connection it wasn't really in the way the right thing for her because she had to go through this gauntlet of fire with pj and Mm -hmm. and discover that i guess the path to her happiness was being kind which i know uh, that was the word that he writes on her forehead but it was interesting to me that that devastated her so much instead of like she even says like why don't you just write cruel yeah it, it, the, the, the request of it, I guess, is why it was so devastating rather than being an accusation.
1: Well, it's it's more powerful when you say be kind like that, your mm-hmm. defense mechanisms aren't gonna come up as fast because you're it's 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 asking you to mm-hmm. do something. It's requesting your permission or requesting your participation in a certain way of thinking and looking at things mm-hmm. rather than labeling you and saying you are this. I liked the element of like you guys are both right when you're talking about the, the cult in the background as being very generic we don't get a sense of what's going on there it's just it, it serves mostly as a prop mm-hmm. to get her to the point where she is being programmed I, I do believe that and agree with that but it's important at the end that once she learns to be kind and that is actual one of the, actually one of the central tenets of this particular strain of philosophy that she's able to actually go back to India mm-hmm. with her mom. Yeah, with her who mom let... who
0: hated India. <laughs> right,
1: right. She and then she's she's doing something positive and she gets to the core of it. She's yeah. not just wandering around all hippy dippy, mm-hmm. you know, with all these other cult members getting touched on her third eye and and having these uh you know trips or whatever you want to call it. She's she's gotten to the reality of it because she learned something crucial through her interaction with PJ and that was that she, the, the kindness element that we've already talked about. And then she's able to take that away and go back and interface with these particular strains of philosophy and, and get to the real nitty gritty of it to where it's going to affect her, not like a drug that you can smoke or a drink that you can drink, but something that actually changes the way you live your life. So it, it's it does really have, like Em said, a very positive message at the end after everything's yeah. been ingested. You just have to drag yourself through a bunch of, absurdist nastiness to get there.
2: One thing I do remember because you actually jogged my memory uh-huh. earlier about it was once he dismantles her cult influence and what's left but for her to follow him or something like that, right? You said something along those lines, right?
0: Yeah, like he's just yeah. replacing one cult leader with another, basically.
2: Right. And and but see, she actually keys in on that and she confronts him about that and she wants to know what he believes and and he doesn't he just says don't worry about it or, or something along those lines. That's like he,
1: not my game kind of thing. Yeah. yeah.
2: Almost like he, he was taken aback by it. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't think he's ever been confronted in that way in this scenario.
1: I think you're right. I think that's something that he he's not able to draw off of any um, practical experience with that kind of situation. Because usually at this point things are going his way and he's he's working the the client or the the patient or however you would like to view this person and and getting them to you know he's working his manipulation and his con game and so they're doing what he wants and they're not coming back with these these kind of barbed questions about well what do you believe and so he's he's just not ready to answer that well
2: and also with him copying out the way he did it it makes you wonder is he really up to the task like really i mean how much does he even actually really know about this stuff
1: that's a great question. I, I, I mean, is it
2: more of the conquest? I mean, is there a reason why you don't because he, he even says, "Well, then I don't want you following me or something like that, but actually, really you do. liar.: <laughs> <laughs> Why do you guys think he had to be devastated in order to to be infatuated with her at the end? Like, what is it about him, and, and what is it about putting him in the dress and the makeup that was like him writing "Be Kind" on her forehead?
0: Uh, I agree with what, what you said in the notes, at least partly like my initial impression was cause she actually says like, who could you love or something like that? And then she draws the lipstick on him. It's like, well, you love yourself. Um, but yeah, I think there's more going on there than, than that, but that's kind of, that was kind of the starting point for me.
1: He got broken down to a point that he he liked it. It was like he was resistant. He was resistant. He was resistant, and then all of a sudden, he decides that he likes that. He likes that emasculation. He likes being put into makeup. He likes being uh, a dress being put on him. And then there's that.
2: And then she's exalted to a religious figure.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then she becomes like there's there's almost like this uh, master slave relationship weirdness going on with, mm-hmm. with all with all of that.
2: It also has a horror element to it too because you talk a lot about the comedy but when Yvonne opens the trunk and you see Ruth yeah. in the trunk and her face is bloody and she mouths the word help that brings so much up in me to where it, it, it actually makes me think of the quote that has been attributed to Margaret Atwood about how men fear mm. that women will laugh at them and women fear that men will kill them and it, it's I think I said something along the lines that I felt like they were putting a large finger on that discord between the genders right there. Mm-hmm. And, but as far as like what else it means, I can't really put it into words.
0: Did he think she was dead and he was going to like hide the body or something? Like what's <laughs> going on in that?
1: I almost wonder if the darkness was held back by, uh, a certain sensibility that was prevailing, um, almost 20 years ago. Hmm. or if if this movie were to be made now if we'd go to a much darker place after the you yeah. know after enduring that desert scene and then you know would the movie ending then change because we would do some you know irredeemable things with the characters or not
0: I don't know how this was developed I I think it was all written beforehand and just Shot as it was written. It feels like a film that was workshopped where the actors improvised and went, you know, hmm. beforehand in rehearsals. Because a lot of this feels like stuff that actors would come up with just experimenting more than it does somebody sitting down and writing it out. But, you know,
2: I, I think like it was written i hope that was the case i know i
0: think that's kind of cool if it's true but i uh-huh. I've, i i i'm putting myself on on a limb because i don't know the production history and all i read was like oh her and her jane campion and her sister wrote this so i have no evidence it feels like <laughs> very organic like it grew out of the performance itself
2: i was wondering what you thought of the film overall
0: i enjoyed it i think i enjoyed it more or i i don't know if enjoy is the right word i think i got more out of it as it went along. I had like mixed feelings about the comedy. I would be sitting there thinking, I don't know, this is kind of broad and over the top. And then I'd find myself laughing unexpectedly. Well, wait a second. If I think it's broad and over the top, why am I laughing constantly? <laughs> so <laughs> It's, it's like, working. <laughs> yeah, I know, exactly. Yeah. Directors who usually do dramatic material, they always have like an odd approach to comedy. Ingmar Bergman with Alfred Hitchcock or The Trouble with Harry. They make these comedies that are very well-made and but awkward and even though their films these directors often have films dramatic films that have a lot of humor in them but when they make something that's straight comedy they are and lynch actually does this too i think if you look at i guess on the air would be his only straight comedy and i felt that at times during this movie um even though i was laughing as well but then as it went along i think the really compelling element to me was the dynamic between kate winslet and harvey Keitel. and. I just, like, I've always loved Harvey Cattell as an actor. I just think he gets into moments and he finds a groove, you know, like a jazz musician. It's not. Uh, it's a different type of performance. I just find it really fascinating and absorbing to watch. And I thought Kate Winslet was great in this, and she was straight off of Titanic, maybe her second or third film after that. I don't know how many films she made in 98 or 99. But Yeah,
2: I think she did this and then followed up quickly after with a, another movie called Hideous Kinky.
0: I don't know that one.
2: Which I've, I've seen that one too. It's good.
0: That could be an alternate title for this film as well.
2: <laughs> I know. <laughs> Thanks, Joel. This was fun. And thank you, everybody.
1: Yeah, thank you for the opportunity for letting us be on your awesome podcast. Um, I hope everybody enjoyed our participation.
0: That's it for this episode. Please send feedback if you have any thoughts on Holy Smoke or Jane Campion or anything else that you want to talk about. Older episodes, doesn't matter. I'm always keen to hear uh, more thoughts on something and, and share those in these podcasts. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way to get this word out there. And of course, you can become a patron for a dollar a month on patreon.com slash lost in the movies or $5 a month if you want to hear more of those Twin Peaks conversations. So that's it for Jane Campion. Uh I, I will mention too before I go, just if you enjoyed hearing Em and Steve, uh, check out their archive. They haven't released any podcasts for a few years um, that I last I checked, but they have the whole Sparkwood in 21 podcast. On uh, Twin Peaks, they've had podcasts on Vikings and Penny Dreadful and all these other TV shows too. So, so definitely look those up on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, No Ship Network was the name that they would go under. With Jane Campion finished, we're going to move on to another director, and I had a little bit of a challenge with this one because I'm I'm pulling episodes from my Patreon, and there were only a few episodes or only a few directors um, that I discussed more than one film of that I haven't like already covered on this podcast and one of those was Darren Aronofsky but I had three films I discussed by him so I'm like well if I'm doing these one a the month but I realized uh, in March we have kind of an extra week because there's five Wednesdays in the month I thought okay this would be a good time to release two in March so that's what I'm going to do two in March one in um May or sorry April and then I'll move on to the last director of these this trio in uh May and June so I'm going to start off with Aronofsky's first feature film Pi That's what we'll be discussing in the next entry, and uh, here's a little taste of that, and I'll see you then.
1: 1245. Restate my assumptions. One, mathematics is the language of nature. Two, everything around us can be represented and understood through numbers. Three, if you graph the numbers of any system, patterns emerge.
2: Therefore... There are patterns everywhere in nature.